Well, good morning, Emmanuel. What a tremendous sight, once again. As you're opening up to the book of 1 Peter in your Bibles, is it not glorious the things that we just sang about? Sometimes I wonder how it is that we can uh, just stand there. (laughs) And sometimes our Pentecostal brothers and sisters may know a little more than we do, lifting hands and worshiping and maybe even moving their feet some. These things are glorious, and they should, in us, produce uh, incredible joy and delight in our God who has worked such great things in our midst. And this is how Peter opens his letter to the churches of Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia with these glorious graces that have come to us, to us who do not deserve them, and far from it. Salvation through faith, a life of hope, a world renewed, and an eternity past, the Father had planned it. And today the Spirit powerfully works in us to recreate us. And when Jesus returns, the work that God has begun will be completed and all his plans fulfilled. What glories of grace he gives to us, he lavishes upon us. And these glories of grace, joyful and wonderful as they are, are meant to be held in our minds. We are to think about them and consider them, hold them as forefront. And so as we go through our passage today, we're going to see that God created us to be disciplined thinkers. We are to be thinkers And we're also going to see, or I hope to answer the question, how shall we be holy? How shall we be holy? Because that is a big ask. Well, let's look at our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And I read from the ESV. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, and we would hear not the words of man, but your words. And your words would enter our minds and our hearts and transform us, recreating us, drawing us ever closer to your Son. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep sense of humility this morning as we come before your word and and the appropriate gravity with them. Let us not take these things as routine or as trivial, but as the very words of life. And I pray all this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're reading Scripture thoughtfully, then something should have happened immediately as we turn to those words. That therefore should have jumped off of the page at you. Therefores are always so important because a therefore links something that came before with what comes next. And so before we consider what comes next, after the therefore, we need to think again about what came before it. And once again, 
it is grace upon grace. God caused us to be born again. And he births us into a living hope. He gives us an eternal inheritance and then he causes us to persevere in our faith so that we will one day receive that inheritance. He takes the fallenness of this world, all the brokenness and the pain and the struggle, and he uses it to refine our own faith. He promises that he himself will lavish upon us praise and glory and honor, and he fills us with glorious and inexpressible joy. Grace upon grace, and grace is what comes before Grace always comes before. And then after the grace, Peter takes us into the imperatives, the commands, the things that we need to do to live faithfully. And so when you think about it like this, I think you end up realizing that all of the Christian life is within this massive therefore, this therefore that we come upon. The whole Christian life is in that therefore. Because we, uh, we love God because he first loved us. We pick up our crosses because Christ picked up his. We keep Jesus' commandments because he kept the Father's commandments for us. All that we do is because he did. We do because he did. And I do not merely mean that Jesus set a great example for us to follow. I mean that he did all the work. And through his work, the glories of grace stream into our hearts and in our lives. And they transform us from one degree of glory to another. So we end up looking like him. So what did he do? By grace, God recreates us. Therefore, we are able to live as new creations. We live in that therefore. And if it wasn't so, and every command that we read in the Bible would crush us. If we had to do so that God would love us, then we would be utterly without hope in this hostile world. There are a lot of people who come to church And there they smell something like a religion of works, a gospel of doing. And they walk away jaded, and then they are right to cast themselves into atheistic hedonism. Because if you're going to die, it's better to die in fleeting pleasure than in crushing commandments. But this is not the case. This is not the case. God's great love is real and it does come first. For Christ died and he rose from the grave. And as he rises, so too can we. And when we rise, we will stand forgiven and justified and holy, joyfully before the judge of all the earth. Because he loved us. And he gave himself for us. And by faith, we are united to Christ. Life eternal then awaits, abounding in pleasures and joys that that no earthly trifles can compare to. And these joys are tasted today. 
Therefore, prepare your mind. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The literal literal translation in that verse is, is gird up the loins of your mind. That's what girding up your loins means. Obviously, they, they wore flowing robes in ancient times and it got in the way, and so they would tuck them up into their belt, and then they'd be ready to attack or work or lift heavy things, strenuous things. But Peter's doing something a little bit unusual with that illustration. He is not talking about putting your robe in your belt. He's not talking about sharpening your sword or preparing your body. He is talking about preparing your mind for action. Get ready to work in your mind. And so this is a challenge for deep thinking, for focused thought, concentration, diligence of mind. We must discipline our minds. We must work hard in thought. If you want a faith that is governed by emotions, you're not going to find it in the Bible. But sadly, our church culture is saturated by mindless emotionalism. People mindlessly following their hearts, mindlessly watching YouTube, mindlessly listening to the meta-narratives of culture, mindlessly going to church on Sundays. Undoubtedly, the truth that we hold in our minds, must penetrate our hearts. It must have an emotional effect somewhere, but it doesn't come first. The mind comes first. God created the mind to be the pathway to the heart. For how can we love somebody unless we know things about them? How can we experience the joy of salvation without first understanding knowledge found in a book? And it turns out that the more our heart is engaged by these truths, these thoughts, the more we're going to think about them. The more they're going to grow in our minds. We think about what we love. And we come to love something because of the truths that we have been informed about. So God created us to be thinkers. Peter exhorts us to prepare our minds for strenuous activity. Now, I recognize, of course, that God has granted all of us minds of different capacities that think in different ways, but he has granted you that mind, so use it to think on him. Do not let it go to waste. The better we understand the truths of God, the more that our hearts will be on fire for him and we will be electrified by the Holy Spirit within us and our lives will be transformed. Intellectual laziness is as sinful as physical laziness. It's sloth of the mind. Therefore, think. He has granted you such incredible graces. Think. Be sober-minded. Being sober-minded has a two-fold meaning. First, don't get drunk. Don't smoke weed, even though it's just been legalized. 
these things inebriate a mind and they steal away clear thinking. Secondly, and perhaps more profoundly, a sober mind thinks clearly about reality, unlike drunken delusions found in a bottle. A sober mind is necessary for an unshakably mature prayer life, for example. And that's where Peter takes us in chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. A sober mind keeps you grounded and alert to the devil's wiles. Peter takes us there in chapter 5. Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You want to pray effectively? You want to keep your feet firmly on the ground? You want to resist the devil? Then know and understand God. Know and understand how God sees the world around you. Know and understand how God sees your sinfulness and your forgiveness. Think upon these things. Be sober-minded. And Peter even tells us in these verses exactly how to be sober-minded, how to prepare our minds for action. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The way to prepare your mind for action The single most important way to sober your mind? Set your hope fully on the return of Christ. That's not wishful thinking. That's not hoping for the best option among many. It is expectant hope that knows it will receive. Because when God says it will happen... It will happen. And God has said that Jesus will return. And God has said that upon Jesus' return, you will be like him. You will be completely holy as he is holy. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The hope set before us is sure, utterly trustworthy. It cannot be shaken and it cannot be plundered and no one can take it. For who can take it from the hand of God? None. God has given you this glorious hope to live in. Therefore, set your mind fully on these graces. And your mind will sober. It will gird up for action. And your heart will fill with joy in the hopes that are yours. They are yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Some commentators argue here that 
Peter is using a Hebrew idiom when he uses that phrase, obedient children. And these words in Hebrew throughout Scripture and other writings are often used to identify those who have heard and believed. The faithful. If that's so, then that sheds a different light on this verse. At least it does for me. Peter's not telling you how to become obedient children. He's telling you that you are, if by faith you have received the gospel. This is like your name being given to you, obedient children. Those who have responded to the gospel in faith are these obedient children, as obedient children who love the grace of the gospel, turn away from your former ignorances. And of course, Peter here is referring to all of the sinful and selfish, proud practices that we lived in before Christ. And he calls them ignorant because they may have known that they were wrong, those practices, but they certainly did not understand the collision course they were on with God's wrath, the dire straits that they were in. And if you are living in sin today, That means that you are on the same collision course for the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Notice both Peter and Paul talk about passions. And it's not just about committing sin, It's about passionately living in those sins. These sins that grip the heart and the mind. You love them and you lived for them. Money and power, comfort, ease, fleshly pleasures, popularity, success, esteem, building a paradise for yourself, on and on on and on. Those that are passionate about these things, Paul calls them sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Contrast that with the obedient children in our passage today who turn away from such things. They turn away from these vile ways of living. But I want you to know the very fact that Peter says this, he exhorts us to turn away from these things, to not be conformed to these passions, is because he knows we are drawn to them. We struggle with them. Each one of us inside of us want these things. They pull on us. It is nice. It is nice to have comfort. Money brings us ease and influence feels so good when people esteem you and pleasures are pleasurable 
So each one of these desires can be okay in the right context and and in the right measure, but as soon as they become our passion, our driving pursuit, they are abominations before the Lord, idols that must be torn down. And so we must think, sons and daughters of obedience, we must think in order to identify these idols. And I think that one of the fastest ways to do this is to ask yourself, in what areas of my life am I discontent? Am I discontent with my bank account and I'm driven to fill it? Am I discontent with my house, my spouse, my reputation, whatever else? Am I discontent? Discontentedness in these things betrays the location of your idols. Is this one of the actions of the girded up mind, then? To topple idols? And most certainly it is. Gird up your loins and go to war with these idols. The children of obedience with sober minds do not rest until the idols of their heart have been toppled and Christ sits on the throne of your heart and in the hearts of those around you enthroned over this world. Let us instead be discontent with how little we know of God, with how little we trust Christ with our lives, with our circumstances, with how repetitive our sins are. These are holy places of discontentedness. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to not live comfortable with this world or with the sins in ourself. If you are comfortable with these things, you need to reckon that now before you reckon it with God. We are not to look Where there is godlessness in the world around us, we should feel like aliens and like strangers. We are not to look like the world around us, chasing after temporal passions and living for ourselves. We are to be altogether different and distinct and holy. Look now at verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And now we must define holiness. Holiness, yes, is about purity, about perfection, about moral cleanliness, righteousness. But more than that, holiness is about transcendent otherness, something different. God is holy, meaning that he is both utterly perfect and pure, but also so different than anything else that exists. He is utterly different. Above all things, he sits enthroned, majestic and beautiful and glorious. He sees all things and he knows all things and he sustains all things and he purposes all things. Nothing compares to God. He is holy, holy, holy. And Peter quotes from Leviticus here. 
For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Like mirrors, God has created us to reflect his holy image. And that mirror is shattered at the fall. And now what is seen is this distorted, disfigured contortion of God in our sinfulness. The image still there, but it's near unrecognizable. None of us are capable of putting these pieces back together now. We need God, the one who has created the mirror, to recreate the mirror. And when he does recreate us, it is in the image of his holy Son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And because he is holy, he has called you, and he has called you, you also are to be holy. Of course, that does not mean that God is calling you to be transcendent and enthroned as he is. It means that he washes you in his holiness so that you can accurately reflect his holiness in the world around you. You are not the source of holiness. You are the image of it. You are the reflection of it. And God has created you for this purpose. He called you into this. Holiness is what he is recreating you for. Which means all the graces of God that extend towards you are so that you become holy. As he is holy. Reflecting the glorious holy image of Jesus Christ. Look again what he says in verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And now it's time to prepare our minds for action, because there's some hard work in those words. So right now, gird up the loins of your mind. And we will strive together to understand something critical about this command from God, which Peter repeats. Who among us can meet the demands of such a command? To be holy like God is holy? Who can consecrate themselves? No one can. We all fall short. If we understand these words as a demand for you to live up to, you will be crushed beneath its impossible weight. So much of Israel's history teaches us that. You will be crushed. Nonetheless, it is a command. You are to be holy. But this command is of a completely different order. When God, who is light, said, let there be light, there was light. When Jesus, who knows sublime peace, said to the raging waves in the storm, peace, be still, there was peace. And when God says 
When God who is holy says to the sinner, be holy, you are holy. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And faith in that blood washes you in Christ's holiness, his holiness becoming yours. Now being washed, the Holy Spirit has been given to you to transform you more and more into that holy image of Jesus Christ. And when Christ returns and you see his holy face, you will be like him, completely holy as he is holy. Praise the Lord. So does that mean that you must do nothing since God is doing everything? May it never be. God has called you to be holy. Therefore, live in that holiness. As God created a fish to swim, so it should swim. And as he created a bird to fly, so it should fly. And as he has created us to be holy, so should we be holy. You were created for it, and Christ spilled his blood for it. So live in it. How are we to live in this holiness? What do we do? What's our side? Sober your mind and think rightly about the realities of God and think on them diligently. Focus on them. Meditate on them. Day and night, take delight in his word so that you know the realities of God and you understand the world around you and you understand yourself. Most powerfully, this path to holiness, set your mind fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to be holy then set your mind fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I need to be completely honest with you. You cannot do these things without the Bible. All that will happen is you will have made yourself some laws and you will fail. You need the word of God in your heart and in your mind, reminding you of this great gospel that he has worked for us. If your thoughts are not first shaped by the Bible, then you are drinking the world's lies, the deceptions of your own heart, and the strange voices that you hear in your head. The Bible is the sobriety that you need. Meditate upon its words. Hide them in your heart. If you do the strenuous work of mining Scripture, setting your hopes upon the promises of God, the result is holiness. What more would you want? Not all at once, but in progress, bit by bit, one degree of glory to another. Holiness is coming in greater and greater measure. Even though God has decreed it and he has declared you holy, your life must be conformed now to that decree. 
You shall be holy, for God is holy. Therefore, conform your life to that holiness. What a living hope we have been born into. What a living hope we share. Remember, these graces are are not all in your distant future. We talk about at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in so many ways, Jesus Christ has been revealed to us now, which is why we are alive spiritually. And so many of these graces come to us today. They stream into our present as the sun that breaks the horizon warms our faces. We feel these graces today. And even though God is set apart and altogether different, you can know him and enjoy him, relationship with him and his great love. And even though we are not completely holy, God has called you to be holy. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And I would like you now to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Because I think as Peter writes these words that we've considered today, the words of Christ are ringing in his ears. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom their master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Brothers and sisters, how important it is for us to think with sober minds, ready for action. Father, we thank you so much for your word and that your word does not allow us to stay desolate in our former ignorance, but to come alive to a living hope in and through your son, Jesus Christ, who is our greatest hope that one day we will see his face. One day we will be like him. And all the work you have wrought will be completed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, how we long for that day. Lord, I pray that each one of us would grow more and more faithful in the consideration of the return of our Savior and Lord. Help us to remember this always and carry it in our minds every moment of the day, to not be distracted by the things of this world, to not be led astray by these idols that would kill us, but to love you with all of our hearts, all of our strength, all of our soul, and all of our minds. Help us, Father. We are so needy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.